looking at Colossians 2, verse 18, continuing the series that we postponed uh, last spring. So let's get the text before us, uh, looking at verse 13 and reading to verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, Let's work on the language that the Apostle uses here. And let's begin with that word, dead. And let's answer the question that he asks or suggests there, when you were dead. When were they dead? How were they dead? When were they made so? When did they become so? So let's think about that and then let's address the mind of the apostle because he's answering the question implicitly if not explicitly. So when did they become dead? When were they made dead? Reba, your head's up. Does that mean your mind is up? That means your your answer is engaged? We were dead in our transgressions. When? From birth. From birth? All right. Well, how did that condition come upon us from birth? Well, Grandpa Adam. Grandpa Adam. (laughs) Uh, He'd be more than a grandpa, but it's all right. (laughs) All right, so you're you're saying... In Adam. In fact, that would be the blank that's underneath 13 in the first sinful or fallen Adam. And what's our fancy word for first? Paul uses the Greek form in 1 Corinthians 15. Protological. Very good. In the protological Adam. In the sinful first or fallen Adam is when they were dead. Is that, does that exhaust their deadness or their source of deadness or their condition of deadness? No. They have, in addition to the guilt of Adam's first transgression, being in him. Now, in him means they're what? Okay, let's do the opposite. In Christ means you're what? United, yes, union, union with Christ and Christo, or in Christ, and Christo is the Greek. So they're in Adam, and in fact, Paul uses that language in Romans. They are united to Adam. So in their union with Adam, okay, they are dead, but they also have something in addition to that union relationship with Adam. What do they have? A sinful nature. 
nature. Yes, so they have a sinful nature in addition to having their union with Adam. In fact, they derive that sinful nature from their union with Adam. The wages of which is death, Romans 6.23. All right, now, they are in Adam, dead. They are by nature sinfully dead. They are with paying out the wages of that union and that nature, they are dead in trespasses and sin, as Paul says in Ephesians. All right, so now, are we with them? You and I and everyone in the Linwood OPC and Trinity OPC and the whole Presbyterian of the Northwest of the OPC and the whole denomination of the OPC and... Are we with them? Are we united with the first Adam? We are. Is all mankind united with the first Adam? In Asia? Tierra del Fuego? Yes. Soviet Union? Well, I couldn't say, can't say that anymore, can I? It's, it's, it's a passe. Russia. All right. So, we are all identified with them with the same constitutive nature, the same union with the protological Adam, and the same consequences. Otherwise, we wouldn't die. Correct? Death is a wage of sin. Wherever death occurs in the human race, that is a evidence of sin. Reba. So we're united with Adam, and now that we're united with Christ, are we still united with Adam? <laughs> the guilt and penalty of your union with Adam has been removed. But you still carry the sinful nature, though it is, but we're going to address that as we go on here in the reversal. No, you don't get rid of all of the taint, okay? But it's, shall we say, it's power, it's force, it's dominance, it's lordship is removed in the transition to union with Christ. It's put to death in the sense that it's power over you leading to death and it's power over you controlling your life, dominating your life, the habits of your life. Those are broken by the power of regeneration. Okay, now, redemption is quite simply a pattern of reversal. And you can see that in this verse. He says you were dead in your sins. What's the reverse of that phrase, dead in your sins? Alive in Christ. All right. So we see the, the reverse paradigm there. <clears throat> so we're going to consider redemption in terms of that pattern of reversal. How does it come about? Well, hypothetically, there are two possibilities. Hypothetically, there are two possibilities. It could come about by a human individual reversing the pattern. Think about that for a moment. In order to bring redemption and reverse the pattern of our sinful condition, a human person could accomplish that reversal, hypothetically. Or could they? Even hypothetically. No. Who said no? Because Dick said no. Because they were born in sin through Adam. 
So they're not, they're not qualified. So they're naturally disqualified. Because they're sinners, there's no way they could remove the sin. Because if they were removing sin, they'd have to... Elisa? They would have to be sinless. They have to be sinless. Let's let's think about if they were going to remove the sin as sinners, they'd only be paying for their own sin, correct? And probably could not pay that off. All right, so hypothetically, as Dick points out, they're disqualified because they're sinners. Well, that leaves us with a dilemma. How is it going to be removed? Lisa? Uh, and the morning Christ can do that. Why? Because he died for the sins of his people. Because he is, um, you said it a little bit ago. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> can I quote you? Yes. Yes, because you were right. <laughs> he, he is sinless. All right, all right. To take away sin, we need someone who is sinless. But if he's going to take away sin, he's going to have to deal with it somehow, isn't he? In other words, he's going to have to be regarded as sinful in order to take away that sin by his sinlessness. He's going to have to identify with the sinfulness in some way in order to remove it. Now, will he do that by being a sinful a sinner in his own nature. Is that how he'll accomplish it? In other words, will the sinless Christ become a moral sinner? No, he will not. All right, so it will not be by nature. That is, it will not be by his sinful nature that he will do this. It's not naturally. It's, what's the word we want? Close. Not quite strong enough. Art? Vicariously, correct. And vicariously means what? Define vicariously, Art. Give me a synonym. A substitute, yes. He will become a substitute. So the word vicarious refers to a substitutionary act. He takes the place of. It's Paul's language, it's the writer of the Hebrews' language, on behalf of, or for the sake of. That's vicarious language. That means he's doing it on behalf of others. So, he is underneath redemption and reversal there on your outline. He is not personally a sinner in accomplishing this work, but he vicariously is regarded as a sinner. He substitutes on behalf of others taking their place which means he takes their place in being regarded as a son of the first fallen Adam. For in fact, that's how the Jews who hated him regarded him. They regarded him as a sinful son of Adam. But he will accomplish that in history. He will accommodate himself to our story as our vicarious representative and substitute. He will not be morally compromised by it, but he will assume that role and be regarded or counted or reckoned in that role, though not personally corrupted by it. 
You understand the distinction here. This is necessary in order to accomplish it because there's no other way to historically complete the work. That's the reason the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God into history is absolutely crucial to your history. He takes your history upon himself vicariously. Is he not born as you are born? Does he not grow up as you grow up? Does he not die as you die? Does he not go into the grave as you go into the grave? Does he not go into eternity as you go into eternity? He does all of that, but he does much more. But you see, you get the pattern. He must repeat the history of those whom he has come to redeem, who are historical persons. All right, so this vicarious element or substitutionary element that we're examining right here, accomplished in history, accommodated to our story, our historical story, is from one regarded, I've already given you the answer there for this first line, one regarded as a son of the first fallen Adam, Adam in the flesh, though he is sinless, eschatological Adam, Adam in the spirit. One regarded as protological, as, as in the protological sinful fallen Adam, Adam according to the flesh, but he himself is the sinless eschatological Adam, Adam in the fullness of the spirit. But he is regarded vicariously as such, not morally or personally corrupted as such, but he takes this upon himself and is looked upon in that way both by those who hated him while he was on the earth and also by his father in order that the, the curse of, of uh, damnation can be reversed by salvation and redemption. So one has to come who will be regarded as a sin, uh, as a son of the first fallen Adam, though he himself is in fact the eschatological sinless Adam, the, the, the Adam to come, the last Adam, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. Right, now that's also going to necessitate, as you see, that's parallel to underneath 13 in the first sinful fallen Adam. So he's regarded as being there, but he is not in that condition himself, but he vicariously assumes that role. Second line there, one charged with, parallel to by having up above there under 13, he is charged with having a sinful nature. In fact, he was so charged and executed for having a sinful nature, a blasphemously sinful nature. The charge was false, but he bears the charge. He takes it upon himself, not because he was internally, corruptively, sinfully blasphemous, but because he would bear it. For he is regarded as having a sinful nature, yet he knew no sin, Second Corinthians 5.21. You get the pattern of this vicarious relationship. This vicarious person, this substitutionary person, this person who is going to do this in the place of sinners must take on by regard, by account, by reckoning, or even by imputation, if you want to use the word, their condition. Though he is not guilty of it. He does not possess it spiritually or morally. It's not in him by nature. 
But he takes on the weight of it. He takes on the curse of it. He takes on the burden of it. He takes on the role of it. He is accounted as one. Why do you think his father can't look at him upon the cross? He is accounted as a sinner at that instant. He is not personally, morally a sinner, but he is accounted. He bears that in our place. And finally, he is one accounted worthy of the wages of sin, which is death, worthy of the subject. Crucify him, crucify him. He's worthy of death. And he bears it. He takes it upon himself. He assumes it vicariously for us who deserve death, though he does not. For he has within himself, what's the writer of Hebrews say? He has within himself, not death, but the power of an endless life. Chapter 7, verse 16. The wonderful nature of this vicarious substitute, this son of the Father, who comes to bear the role of the curses that affect us and afflict us and bind us, he binds himself to them, not morally, personally, or in his own consciousness, but he binds himself to them by reckoning, by being charged with, by substituting for them. I'll put myself in their place. I'll take their sinful nature in, my, in their place. I'll take that curse upon me without producing any sin out of myself, but I'll take the guilt of that nature, the blame of that nature. And so he acts on our behalf. But notice grace upon grace here. Thus, we are acted upon in him. As he acts on our behalf, we are acted upon in him. Vicariously speaking, not personally speaking, he acts, but when he acts, we are united to him as the last Adam. We are united to him and to his no longer being regarded as sinful. We are united to him as no longer subject and worthy of death. We receive the benefits of his vicarious and substitutionary work. All right, any questions about this pattern here with respect to the word dead in trespasses or transgressions? Now let's look at the next word in that 13th verse. Well, before that, let's let's summarize uh, just just uh, one more time here. <clears throat> let's fill in the blanks under that uh, bold type. He acts on our behalf. So we are acted upon in Him, in union with the second sinless Adam. In union with the eschatological Adam, we are acted upon. So we are united to Him as the second Adam who reverses the curse of the first. We are acted upon in him by having a new nature, begotten again or born again in us through his resurrection from the dead. Now, the connection of Jesus' regeneration to his resurrection, I've made that case a number of times from this, from this uh, dais. <clears throat> it comes from 1 Peter 1.4, and it indicates the connection of regeneration to the resurrection of Jesus. 
and therefore leads us to consider the fact that Jesus, vicariously, is regarded as one who was born again, regenerated from death to life. That's what regeneration is. It's a transition from being under the curse of death and being granted the gift of eternal life. Jesus endures that curse, and so he is given life by resurrection. He is born again from the grave, born again from the dead. So Jesus goes through vicariously regeneration on our behalf. And finally, he acts on our behalf, and thus we are acted upon in him. The wages that we receive is life from the dead in union with his resurrection, life from the dead. Now notice in the last two instances I've emphasized the resurrection life of Christ as a means of regarding him as regenerated by resurrection, born again by resurrection from the dead, and here as a means of giving the very life that he has, namely eternal life by resurrection from his grave in Jerusalem. Now, why do I underscore that? Because for the Apostle Paul, that is the turning point of the ages. It is not the crucifixion of Christ per se, though the crucifixion of Christ is extremely important to the Apostle. But it is the resurrection of Christ that is crucial to Paul's sojourn, Paul's conversion, Paul's uh, (coughs) thinking, Paul's whole persona. If you do not grasp the significance of what happened on that Damascus road to Saul of Tarsus, you do not understand what it was that stopped him and converted him. It wasn't a a decision for Christ. Okay, It wasn't somebody preaching to him and he decided to go down to the altar. It wasn't somebody that laid out the whole story of the Bible and said, well, what do you think of this? It was the appearance of a glorified, risen, radiant, manifestly alive Jesus of Nazareth. That's what stopped him and changed his whole way of thinking. Now, I'm going to attempt to put this all together next time. But I want to root it in what is here in these verses this afternoon. So there's a method to my madness. I'm moving forward to that significance of that event on Paul on the Damascus Road in terms of the pattern of reversal, redemptive reversal, salvation as the reversal of damnation. Historic stuff, events in history, something that happens to Jesus, something that happens to Paul, These are historical events. This is historical drama. This is not just simply doctrinal ideas, intellectual concepts. This is vital stuff. This is living stuff. It still is. Grasp it. Get a hold of it. All right, now. Next, we want to think about this pattern in terms of the second word in this 13th verse uncircumcised, uncircumcised. So we ask the same question, when and how uncircumcised? When and how uncircumcised? 
Obviously, by being what? Or? No. Pagan, give me a synonym. Go ahead. That seems like a synonym for unregenerate state. Natural state. Who are the uncircumcised? The Gentiles. Okay. This is a Gentile audience. Okay, I'll have a comment to make on that point. By being Gentile pagans is when and how they were uncircumcised. Now, we're not talking here about the symbolism of circumcision. We're talking about the state of uncircumcision. Okay? We're not talking about the state of what being circumcised means. We're not talking about the state of being uncircumcised means per se. We're simply talking about what it means as a condition to be uncircumcised. It means you're a Gentile. It means you're a pagan. It means you're not a Jew. All right, now, it also means that you are a stranger to what? To God, okay. Anything else? Where did the covenant of circumcision originate? Under Abraham. When? What kind of a covenant is it? Covenant with God. It is a covenant of what? How many kinds of covenants are there? Catechism question number one. Not number one, really. Covenant of works and... Go ahead. What's the other covenant? Is that the, is the covenant of works a covenant with Abraham? Yeah. No. No. What is the covenant with Abraham? Covenant of grace. There are two covenants. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. Are there any more covenant of works after Adam falls? No. There are no more works covenants after Adam falls. Moses has a works covenant? Is that what the confession says? Is that what the confession says? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That doesn't sound like works to me. Well, the law is a works covenant. The law is a works covenant. I don't think so. The OPC Study Commission doesn't think so. The confessions don't think so. The law is emphasizing works in the context of grace in order to drive you graciously to the one who did the work that you didn't do. All right, now, back to circumcision or uncircumcision. The uncircumcised are strangers to the covenant of grace. They did not receive the sign of circumcision that the Jews received from Abraham on down as a sign of the covenant of grace. One more thing. Uncircumcised means they were cut off. Cut off from what? Grace. We already said grace. (laughs) We We already took care of the covenant of grace. They're outside the covenant of grace. They're cut off from what? What goes along with Abraham's covenant? Promises, yes. They're cut off from the promises of God. All right, so this word uncircumcised is simply a state of their being outside these privileges, okay? We're not talking about the symbolism of the, of the privileges. We're simply talking about being outside the state or condition. <clears throat> they are Gentiles. They are outside 
the Jewish, uh, the, the, the Jewish privilege. <clears throat> they are strangers to the covenant of grace. They are under the covenant of condemnation. They are cut off from the promises of God. They are without hope in the world, as Paul says elsewhere. All right, now, it is strange for us to think about this, but Paul places it here in antithesis. Once again, what is the reversal of uncircumcised that must be accomplished in history? In order to reverse this condition, which infects all Gentiles, which affects, I shouldn't say infects, which affects all Gentiles, one vicariously treated as uncircumcised, though he himself is circumcised in the flesh, must enter into a circumcision made without hands. Look up above at verse 11. We've already talked about this when we explained verse 11, but here we're emphasizing the significance of how he ties circumcision without hands to uncircumcised in verse 13 with verse 11. The Gentiles must be represented by one treated as uncircumcised, even though he himself is circumcised in the flesh, while he enters into a circumcision made without hands. Well, what was this circumcision made without hands that he entered into? Notice at the end of verse 11, he says, the circumcision of Christ. What is this circumcision of Christ? I like that, but it's a little too far. It's a step before. It's a step before. Fulfillment of the law? No, it's a step before. What event is he referring to? The circumcision of Christ. His death. His death where? On the cross. On the cross. He is cut off. He is circumcised unto death on the cross. So, that's exactly what Paul means by that phrase, by the circumcision of Christ. Remember, when we talked about that, we're not talking about the circumcision, the physical circumcision of Jesus on his eighth day after his birth. No, that's not what Paul was talking about. Here, he is talking about Jesus being circumcised by dying on the cross. All right, so the uncircumcision of the Gentiles is going to be reversed by the circumcision of Christ. The uncircumcision of the Gentiles is going to be reversed by Christ himself assuming their uncircumcised role. In other words, being treated as if he is a pagan Gentile outcast. But that's not all. One must be vicariously regarded also as a stranger to the covenant of grace, he must be regarded vicariously as a stranger to the covenant bearing the curse of that covenant cast out of his father's sight so that the uncircumcised may receive the privilege of grace. He must be cast out. He must be regarded as a stranger to his father. He must be regarded as outside the covenant of grace and under the covenant of the curse. He must be regarded and accounted and reckoned in that role 
and personally and vicariously assume it in himself so that it can be reversed for those who are uncircumcised, who are in that condition, actually. The Gentile hope then, as Paul is explaining here, I'm filling in some details. As Paul is explaining, the Gentile hope is that your uncircumcision be cured by his circumcision. Your lack of being dedicated or signed as belonging to God has to be reversed by his, his being regarded as not belonging to God in your place so that you can belong to God. All right, now this is a little bit complex. But Paul is using language here which is freighted. It is loaded. And it's interesting that he doesn't expand much upon it because he expects his audience to understand it, which means that Epaphras had done a job with this bunch. He had done a job of evangelism and indoctrination with this bunch. These Colossian Christians were sharp. They understood what was behind this language. They got it. We tussle with it. But the clues are there. The language is there. The language bears with it the imagery and the reality of the historical context, the historical historical significance. So we come back to the redemption in history. Not redemption is an abstraction, not salvation is an abstract decision or, or a, a warm, uh, <coughs> a warm, uh, soft, fuzzy feeling, but redemption in history. Redemption taking place in the story of mankind. Redemption taking place in a person who enters that story and becomes a human man, a human man, for a part of mankind, and reverses that story in the arena in which it was reversed in the first place. From sinlessness to sinfulness, he is going to regard by be regarded sinfully and regard return it back to sinlessness. All right, one more there under <clears throat> uncircumcision. One is going to have to vicariously be cut off. He is going to have to be cut off from the promises of God. And being cut off from the promises of God means he's going to vicariously be consigned to death. So that in his rejection on their behalf, they might become accepted as the sons and daughters of the promises of God. There's no other way for you uncircumcised Gentiles to be brought in. Somebody must be cut off in your place because you're already cut off. You're cut off from the promises of God. He must be cut off in your place so that you can receive the promises of God and no longer be cut off from the God of glory and salvation. All right, so these images, which have profound significance historically in terms of what has happened to mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, And what happens to Christ in place of his elect, redeemed mankind, Jew and Gentile alike? This profound language can be summarized 
with a review of the reverse motifs. Easy enough. Dead is reversed with life. Alive in Christ. Let's put in Christ after each of these because that's how it has been accomplished. He is the vicarious substitute. He is the one that did it in our place, did it in their place, did it in the Gentiles' place, did it in the uncircumcised place. He did it. Transgressions reversed. Righteous deeds. Righteous deeds. Not righteous deeds. Salvation. Salvation. Let's say forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. Transgressions are sins. Forgiveness of sins in Christ. He becomes a vicarious sinner. He is regarded as a sinner on the cross. His father must forgive him his sins when he has paid the price. So our sins are forgiven in that price being paid. He becomes regarded as a sinner so that we may regard, be regarded as he is, namely sinless. Though we're not actually sinless, we're regarded, we're, in, we're reckoned that way by the forgiveness of our sins. All of our sins or just some of them? All of our sins. They're all remitted. There's no sin held to our account. He took everyone to his account and has wiped the slate clean. That's no license to sin, but nonetheless, that's the wonderful character of the grace of Christ. All right, the reversal of uncircumcision. Circumcision of... Circumcision of, it's derivative, man. We've got to get the first things first. The circumcision of Christ. Remember, he, he, verse 11, he talks about the circumcision of Christ. We've got to get this into the discussion because that's how Paul thinks. The circumcision of Christ, <clears throat> we're in Christ in his circumcision, in his death on the cross. And his being cut off from his father, being cut off from the promises, his being cut off from hope, his being consigned to the grave. Reversal of uncovenanted. Where about Reba? Back on an uncircumcised can we say grafted in? No, I want to keep the language parallel, if I can, because that's what Paul's doing in verse 11. He's using the word circumcision in Christ to be a parallel or an antithesis to uncircumcised in verse 13. It's not wrong for you to think that way, but see, I want to keep these, these parallels on the basis of his language. And uncovenanted... No, I know the term's not there, but we, we've talked about this in terms of the Gentile condition, Mark. Just say brought into the covenant of grace. But okay, so we'll say grace-covenanted. How's that? Grace-covenanted in Christ, right? Once again, we want to get the in Christ uh, <coughs> statement with each of these. Alive in Christ, forgiven in Christ, circumcised in Christ, grace-covenanted in Christ, cut off from God. The reversal... Included in Christ? I want a better word than included, though it's a fine synonym. I want a stronger word. Ben, what do I want? He's, right, he's writing. Received. 
Now, you used it earlier. This United in Christ. What's that? United. There we go. United. Thanks, Dick. Yeah. <clears throat> Included, united. Those are synonyms, but I want the union motif. Okay. United to God in Christ. It's not just united to Christ. Through Christ, through Christ's union, you're united to the Father and the Holy Spirit. You're united to the triune God in all his fullness and glory. You're united to the Father so you can say, Abba, Father. You're united to the Spirit so you can say, Breathe on me, breath of God. Okay? <clears throat> all right. Now, there's this basic paradigm here. And uh, I want to conclude, unless you have some questions, I want to conclude with an aside, which I've alluded to, but I want to uh, make a fuller statement on it. All right, here's the aside. This verse, namely verse 13, tells us a lot about the audience of this epistle. What does it tell us? True? What does it tell us? They were... True? Is this a Jewish audience? Is it a pagan Gentile audience? Now, it doesn't mean to say that there were not Jews involved in this in this church in Colossae. We will make that case later on in the end of this second chapter. But at this point, the bulk of this congregation is being described as uncircumcised. That language also appears in verse 11 of chapter 3. Circumcised and uncircumcised after he talks about Greek and Jew. You know, it puts, he puts it in reverse fashion. There's a chiasm there. I'm not going to go into that. Barbarian, that's Gentile. Scythian, that's Gentile. Slave and free man, that could be Gentile. Could be Gentile. Nonetheless, the language that reinforces this uncircumcised term in verse 13, which tips the balance of who was receiving this in terms of their ethnic background, these are pagan Gentiles. Would it be expected? in Colossae, which was a pagan Gentile city, expected in Asia Minor, which was a pagan Gentile territory, expected in the Roman Empire, which was full of pagan Gentiles. <laughs> it makes sense. Nonetheless, there's been a great argument about this. <clears throat> Nonetheless, I think it's a lot easier to solve than the argument, go- the argument goes. <clears throat> and we pick up the implication from this word uncircumcised here in verse 13. Reba? really rich to them because they would be familiar with the Jewish culture and the privileges that within that whole. That's a, that, that's a more complex question. Um, if they are if they're Gentile converts, it is not likely they had much exposure to Jewish custom and tradition other than just simply being aware that there were Jews in their community. There's not a great deal of interest in Gentile, particularly Roman Gentiles in Judaism, unless it becomes troublesome. As long as they mind their business and keep their place, you know, they can go through their rituals, they can have their synagogues, etc. But uh, 
there's there's not a great deal of penetration into what they believed in the Gentile world. Uh, that is true. Uh, there were proselytes, particularly after the uh, Babylonian captivity. There were proselytes who came into Judaism, but it wasn't it wasn't something where they're sending out missionaries to uh, bring people to the Jewish faith. That is correct. <clears throat> Christian missions, the the gospel going to the Jewish and Gentile world. That is a new movement in the history of redemption. Yes, question. Didn't you say before that? Paul doesn't go into a lot of detail because of the teaching of Ephesus. About Ephesus, yes. Mm-hmm. The Colossians. The yeah. Colossians were already reformed. And now you say that he's, that the church is mostly made up of Gentiles? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm missing something. Uh, you're suggesting and I'm confusing you? Uh, yes the the, the church is well informed and in fact it could be well informed about Old Testament teaching I I, I should back up and qualify that statement that is is possible yes that they were that the the Gentile congregation was acquainted with Jewish doctrine from the Old Testament because Epaphras had educated them or instructed them in that. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So, so I'll qualify my previous statement. It's good, good to have somebody that doesn't think like you do and can contradict you. <laughs> go, go ahead, Reba. Because he taught them, not because they were, it was part of the culture. No, right. It, it would have to have been something if you opened the Old Testament scriptures and taught them out of the scriptures. And, and of course, now that I think about it, that's absolutely reasonable. Okay, enough confusion. Time to come up for oxygen. Take a break and we'll uh, finish up with what we have. All right, we're on to the second page of your handout. And we're looking at verse 14. What is this certificate or decree decree of debt outstanding against us? What is a debt? True. It's what is owed, correct. It's our IOU. And in this case, it is what is owed to God. Or it is what is due to God. What he deserves by right, by right of person, that is who he is, and by right of character holy and righteous that he is. So, if we look at certain categories of our indebtedness, we want to also examine them in terms of this redemption by reversal paradigm, reversal actualized or accomplished in history. Those uh, items listed on your outline are what we are, what we have, okay? What we are is full of sinfulness. 
what is owed to God, fill in the blank or write in the blank space. Right. No. Sinlessness. 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 Correct. What is owed to God is sinlessness. Can we pay it with an IOU based upon our ethnic background? Our gender? Our social status? Our membership in a church? Our good works? We have no way of paying it. So... This sinlessness, which incidentally is as the sinlessness of God himself, cannot be paid by us. So where do we get it? From a... Substitute. From a substitute, right. From a substitute. We get it in Christ from a substitute, a vicarious figure who performs what is owed who takes the debt to himself and pays it, settles it in history. The sinlessness of Jesus of Nazareth is absolutely essential to your being regarded as sinless in God's sight. I alert you to the fact that the progressive, modern, liberal establishment is determined to make Jesus of Nazareth a sinner. They started it in Jesus Christ Superstar. They are proceeding apace now. You are going to come to the day, sometime, when Jesus is going to be regarded as a blasphemous, common, ordinary sinner. And yet the Christian church in many ways is going to recognize and accept that. It is coming. It is already out there in the progressive literature. So be ready for understanding why you need a sinless Savior. All that buzz and rigmarole won't affect you if you understand why sinlessness in history of a historical person who is the divine Son of God in person, that is absolutely necessary to you. You are personally benefited by that. You will not give that up. Because if you do, you have no hope of your sinfulness being canceled by sinlessness. If he is as sinful as you and I are, we are of all men and women most miserable. Okay, the second category, unrighteousness. And now, Randy... Righteousness. Righteousness is owed for our unrighteousness. We do not have it. Once again, we cannot settle the debt because our unrighteousness already disqualifies us. So we need righteousness. And where do we find it? We find it in a substitute. We find it in a vicarious person. We find one who find it in one who performed perfect righteousness in history. Perfect obedience to the law was performed by Jesus of Nazareth. Once again, not only no sin, but no unrighteousness. No lack of falling short of the righteous standard that God had set out. Perfect righteousness in his Father's sight. Pristine, pristine obedience. 
All right, the next category. Our debt makes us liable to blame. What do we need? I'd like to keep the pat. I'd like to keep the vocabulary similar. Blamelessness. Blamelessness. All right. It's not that innocence isn't involved here, Brandy. So, <clears throat> blamelessness here means no moral stain, no moral blemish. Yeah, I skipped guilt, didn't I? Yeah, innocence would be uh, be the thing to fill in opposite of guilt. I'm sorry, I skipped over that. So we'll go back and pick it up. Uh, Innocence for guilt, not guilty. Blamelessness for blame, no moral stain. That's a little bit different than talking about sinfulness, though it includes, the sinfulness includes moral stain and blemish. But that's what I'm after here. It's not that Jesus didn't commit any sin. Not that Jesus didn't perform any unrighteousness. It's he had no moral blemish inside him. He had no moral stain in his character. All right, demeritoriousness. Meritorious. Meritorious, that's correct. There's only one meritorious figure in human history, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. Adam had the opportunity, he blew it. Jesus of Nazareth did everything that Adam didn't do. He merited his father's favor and reward. You can't do that. I can't do that. No sinner after Adam could do it. No Jew at at Israel could do it. No Israelite could do it. Couldn't do it typologically or couldn't do it actually. Couldn't do it eternally. Couldn't do it temporally. Couldn't do it. Impossible. Can't have merit after the fall. Augustine, chapter and verse. Unworthiness. He is altogether worthy. All right, so he settles what is due on the basis of his sinless righteousness, his innocence and blamelessness, his meritorious worthiness. He settles what we owe on all the qualities that he has. But he enters into those opposite aspects of those qualities in order to turn the reversal, to to reverse them, to change them, to cancel them, to annul them. Debt canceled. Penalty paid. Obligation satisfied. IOU canceled. Stamp paid in full. Signed, Jesus of Nazareth in his own blood. Life blood. Resurrection life blood. All right. I'm getting carried away there a little bit, but you get the idea. Now, that brings us to verse 15. He disarmed rulers and authorities. Who are these rulers and authorities? King James translates them principalities and powers. Rulers and authorities is probably a better translation, but nonetheless, you get the idea if you remember the King James James language. Who are they? Now, we want to answer this question from within the context of the epistle. First, we want to ask what kind of rulers and authorities are they? Now, when I say what kind of rulers and authorities, I'm asking, are they friendly or unfriendly? 
They are unfriendly. And how do you know from the context? Wait a minute. Go ahead. They're sinful. They're sinful. They're man. So they're sinful. They're not man. But they are sinful. Marge, what were you going to say? From the context. That doesn't say anything about them being sinful there in the context, but they are. But what from the context tells you that they're unfriendly? Well, have to disarm them. They have to be disarmed, correct. And you notice up in verse 14, he uses another word that suggests they're unfriendly. Hostile. Hostile, correct. All right, so from the context, these rulers and authorities are hostile and need disarmed. Okay, so, once again, from the context of what we have read today, 13 to 15, who are these principles, who are these rulers and authorities? Name one. Satan. Satan. Satan's not named in the context. One authority that rules, hostile to us, at enmity with us. Not Satan, but in the context, verse 13. When you were, when you were dead, when you were dead. Death, is death one of the rulers and authorities hostile to us? Is it what does it need to be disarmed? It certainly does. Yes. Now, I think Paul was thinking about the negative principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities. He's not talking about the glorious ones. He's not talking about the ones of the new creation. He's talking the ones under the curse of the old creation, that is the old created order which is fallen and subject to death, etc. So <clears throat> death is, in my opinion, one of the rulers and authorities that he has in view here. That has been disarmed. How has death been disarmed? What? In the context. What did Christ do? Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The dead, the curse of death, the rule of death, the authority of death has been disarmed. In fact, it's been openly displayed as having been disarmed. It's having been stripped of its power. Okay, so death is one of those rules and authorities. Because the opposite of that death is the life of Christ which has disarmed it. Go ahead. Randy. What do you mean to imply death has a sort of personality? Uh, It's it's those that are part of that power. Yes, it derives from Satan, but Satan's not mentioned here in the context. I'm being very strict about the context. Okay, I want to want to talk about what is in the context as a power and rule. I don't want to go outside of what Paul is saying in these three verses. Reba. Off the, in him you were also circumcised in putting off 
the flesh. And then down on 13 where you're referring, he also talks about the flesh. That's a possibility. I didn't include it in my list, but that's fine. If you if you're thinking if you're thinking of the power of the flesh in that sense, well, yes. It says rather than authority. So I guess I'm jumping a little bit ahead. Um, well, it's not wrong for you to be thinking in those categories because there's more there's more than what I'm going to list here. So the power of the flesh is certainly another uh, authority and rule which is an, an enmity against us. And and to Randy's point, the personification of these rulers and powers, <clears throat> yes, because they have power. And in that sense, we can personify them as having uh, personality. <clears throat> they are going about like Satan himself, like a roaring lion, seeking who they may devour. This is just a, simply a, a way of, of, <clears throat> of producing a, an imagery of their their activity and their definition and <clears throat> and their cursed condition. Okay, what else besides death? is a rule or a power that has been disarmed. Sin, Sin has been disarmed, yes. <clears throat> Transgressions, they have been disarmed by remission of sin, forgiveness of sin, cleansing of sin, removal of sin. He did it on the cross. He disarmed them there publicly. Disarmed them. Okay, what else has been removed or disarmed? Verse 14. The written code and regulations. Verse 14. Verse 14. You're going ahead. I'm going back. Legal. Oh, is, it, 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 is that what your Bible says? Oh, I have a different version today, so that's what it says. The legal code? The written code. The written code. Okay. Um, well, we were dealing with the word debt there, which, of course, is what I'm after. So you, you've got the right place. <laughs> but I think the better translation is debt, which is the reason I've been using it. Okay, the debt has been disarmed. Or that rule and authority that is owed has been paid in full, nailed to the cross of Christ, <clears throat> which is also specified there in verse 14. Okay, what else? What other rule and authority has been disarmed? As it's it's not earthly rulers. It's not earthly authorities. Yeah, it's a power, isn't it? It's a power that exists uh, completely in Satan himself. Okay, so we can talk about that power in terms of rule and authority. We don't mean to cut it off from the person who has that power. Okay? Okay? But here Paul's not talking about the person so much as he's talking about the power itself. 
Because it's Christ going up against that power of what is owed. He's going up against that power of sin itself and its corrupting influence. He's going up against death itself as a power. So we're taking a little bit of liberty, granted, but we're, we're seeing them as personified characters, personified forces. So, so we, we put a little meat on the skeleton rather than just thinking of them abstractly, which I think is what he's doing here. At least that's my opinion, and that's the way I'm proceeding. So what's the other, what's the next power or rule and authority? Well, it's hostility itself, or enmity is a synonym for hostility. <clears throat> that enmity and hostility, which is against us, has been defeated and pacified. For sin is hostile. Hell is at enmity with us. Christ has defeated it and pacified it. He has appeased it by making himself sacrifice to it and for it to defeat it. And the final uh, <clears throat> rule and authority, and this might be a bit of a reach, but since it's in the context, I'm going to suggest uncircumcision. The uncircumcision as a rule and power that <clears throat> restricts the Gentiles to being outside the covenant of grace. And the reversal of that, that uncircumcision has been disarmed in the circumcision in Christ, who is head and source of God's covenant of grace, and who himself was cut off as if he were circumcised away from the covenant. All right, now, yes, Randy. What about the world itself? He doesn't use it in this context. I don't think it would be wrong to bring it in as a derivative, but I'm trying to stick with the language of this section and think in terms of parallels or antitheses, rather, with respect to him using this language, rulers and authorities, in terms of powers or forces of rule and authority that are hostile to us. Sin, death, uh, transgression, indebtedness, indebted to the law, etc. Uh, <clears throat> uncircumcision with respect to the Gentiles. How about burial in uh, verse uh, 13? I would, yeah, I would attach that to, I would attach that to death, uh, Dick. It's, it's <clears throat> related to being under the power of death. All right, now notice what he does in this 15th verse. This is the last thing to note this afternoon. Not only are these rulers and authorities disarmed, Christ openly or publicly paraded these captives. Now, here's another reason for personifying them. He paraded these captives to his finished redemptive work in an open triumph, a victory parade, if you will, of the Prince of Life, Light, and Peace, over the principalities and powers of death, darkness, and enmity. Now, why does Paul use this parade language? Public display, triumphing over them publicly through him. It's possible, but that's used in 
Isn't it Ephesians that's that, where Paul quotes that? Um, I, I, I think it's more local. He uses an image here which the Colossians would be very familiar with. Why? Because Colossae, if you remember your geography, was on that road that connected Ephesus in the west of Asia Minor with the Euphrates River in the eastern part of Asia Minor. The border of Asia Minor was the Aegean Sea on the west and the Euphrates River on the east, and there was a road, as you remember that map, that wove all of its way across the Cappadocian region and through Anatolia, and Colossae was on that road that led up to Ephesus, if you were going from east to west. And on that road came Roman legions marching back and forth across that part of the empire. And it's likely that those legionnaires came in formation as they marched through Colossae and, in fact, as the evidence points out from the archaeological record, bivouacked in Colossae. The remnants of what have been found there in Colossae <coughs> indicate that the Roman legions camped there. They were bivouacked there. Place to stop. Lush valley full of lots of good food, fresh water. A city that had uh, Roman baths and a coliseum and, and so on, an amphitheater and so on. All right, so Paul then borrows from the, from the geography and from the historical background of Colossae this image of Christ leading the parade. Just like the commander of that, that band of legionnaires would have been leading them as they marched through the city of Colossae. But Christ is leading a more triumphant uh, band. He's leading the host of his redeemed and the glory of his own infinite and eternal train as Prince of Peace. Not the only explanation for that image, but nonetheless the one I think that fits the context of what he's been doing in the section 13 to 15 but also fits the geographical and historical context of Colossae as a Roman outpost. Go ahead, Reba. Well, enforcing or confirming your thoughts, I was back up at nine. It's a constant, it's a crisis. No, um, that in nine it says, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him. And then it goes on to talk about what you're talking about. And then it, back down here in 15, it says, having disarmed the powers and authority, he made public. So he didn't talk about the Jews coming against him. He talked about um, our circumcision, our sinful nature, the things that you've just talked about within those two. So that seems to back up what you're talking about. He's the head of all these powers and authorities, and he's brought them in subjection, <coughs> disarmed them. Yes, what the, as Reva points out, verse 9 uses, or actually it's verse 10, uses that phrase rule and authority into the same Greek phrase which is used in verse 15. So there is a, a, a symmetry between the two. And in between those, he, he talks about what you've just been talking about. He doesn't take it off to the Jews and the powers that, you know, and the Roman soldiers. He... he takes it and is talking about our circumcision and those things that you're saying. These are spiritual rulers and authorities, yes. Yeah. 
Thank you. Anything else? Yeah. Yes, Ben. When we first, when we started out uh, the lectures here, uh, the, uh, Christ came to be our substitute, but that arrangement had to be agreed upon by the judge, which was God the Father. We had to agree upon the arrangement that someone would be allowed to substitute for our sins. Yes, lo, I come to do thy will, O Lord. Yeah. So in verse, in verse 13, where it says, He made you alive together with him, the he there must be God the Father who made us to be alive. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. Yeah, there's an, there's an ambiguous use of the pronouns there, but I think you're right. It is God the Father who is in view with the first he. Yeah. Actually, Jesus is doing all of this in submission to the Father, so the Father is in the background of all this language, implicitly, if not explicitly. But here, I think you're right. I think it's explicitly true. The, the antecedent of the pronoun is God the Father, not God the Son. Okay. All right, now, as I said uh, earlier, I'm not really done with this section. So I want to do one more thing, uh, which I don't have time for this afternoon. So you might want to remember to bring back your outlines. If you forget, don't uh, don't f- uh, fret. I'll have a new outline for you next time, but I'll also have copies of the of this of this one if you forget yours and you want to make some additional notes. Let's close in prayer. Father, how we bless you that for we who are historical beings. You accommodated yourself through your Son by your Spirit to our historical situation. In a marvelous way, graciously, mercifully, wonderfully allowed Him, He coming to do your will willingly, to take on our condition vicariously. Thank you for this wonderful substitute and mediator this one who is altogether very God and very man, who has taken our death upon himself and given us the life that is in him, who has taken our sin and sinfulness upon himself and given us the right to be regarded as sinless in your sight, who has done so much for the riches of grace for us he has taken away the curse that belongs to us. We rejoice in the riches that the Apostle has poured out in these verses. And we ask that you will bless them to our hearts and to our lives and to our confession. That we will be willing to stand fast on this confession which has been true for the Colossians Christians as it has been once and for all to all the saints. Bless your church in these days, O Lord, keeper in the light of the truth of him who is the light and truth of God. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.